Chapter 8 God's Threats Sermon 156 Preached Friday, the 13th of March, 1556 On Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 24 But it shall come to pass, if you will not hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you this day, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket, and cursed shall be your kneading trough. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your land, the increase of your cattle, and the flocks of your sheep. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall send upon you cursing, vexation, and rebuke, in all that you set your hand unto, until you be destroyed, and until you perish quickly, because of the wickedness of your doings, by which you have forsaken him. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave to you, until he has consumed you from off the land to which you are going to possess it. The Lord shall smite you with the consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with the sword, and with blasting, and with mildew. And they shall pursue you until you perish. And your heaven that is over your head shall be brass, and the earth that is under you shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come upon you until you are destroyed. We have seen the past several days how God entreats his people with promises. Now, on the opposite side, he adds threats. And that is not without a good reason, for we see how slow we are when it comes to submitting ourselves to obeying God. Our feet are swift enough to run to evil, as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 59.7, and as it is spoken of in the Proverbs, Proverbs 1.16. But God cannot make us set forth one step to behave ourselves properly, and therefore we must be compelled to it by force. Nevertheless, God certainly begins with gentleness and goodness, and that is why he first sets forth his blessings to those that serve him. He might very well have begun with threats, but he did not. In so doing, he makes a test to see whether we are apt to be taught, by showing himself fatherly towards us, and by making it to be seen that he seeks nothing other than our benefit, welfare, prosperity, and quietness. Promises as Motives Thus we see how God first tests us, and if that does not avail, he uses threats. These two belong together. Let us consider the matter. What good does it do if we do not serve God freely and willingly? Even if men are not able to find any fault with us, yet if we obey unwillingly, our whole life is detestable. After all, the main point is that we are to have a free and good will, to give ourselves over to God. For if we are not to obey merely with a view to the reward, how much more does it follow that if we obey simply out of constraint, all our life is cursed? We can see that a desire to serve God because it is not lost labor, because it is rewarded, is not all we have to do. For when we have come to that point, we are only halfway. Even if a man receives the promises contained here and offers himself to God to serve him, yet his obedience is always imperfect 
and deserves to be cast off. And why so? Because, as I have said, we are not to be hirelings, but our yielding of ourselves to God must be because we are His, and because He is worthy to have our lives employed in His obedience, and especially because He is our Father. He begins with promises because of our infirmity to get us going, and when He has brought us on so far, then He manifests to us a greater perfection. To summarize the matter, we have to note that there are three kinds of people who keep the law of God in outward show. One sort does it out of compulsion, with gnashing of teeth, though they do discharge its commands after a fashion. And why? Because they know well that they cannot escape the hand of God. They fear His anger and His vengeance, and therefore they do serve Him, but only by compulsion. But, as I have said, all this is rejected. A second sort takes the middle way, for they know that God is faithful, and that such as serve Him will not lose their labor. These hearken to the promises that are expressed in Holy Scripture. And so, a great many do yield themselves to serve God, because He lures them thereto by promising them reward, as we have seen before. And now moving to the third sort, but as I said, we may not stay there, but we must rather consider that since God has made and fashioned us, redeemed us, and is our Father, these things ought to suffice us apart from what He has promised us. And since He has gone before us with His mercy, and shows Himself so bountiful towards us, we should be inflamed with ardent affection to serve Him. This is one of the principal points of our life. But as I said before, our Lord in His law has respect of our imperfection, and therefore He promises to reward us so that we should have a better courage. And indeed, though we serve God with a pure and free affection, yet we must always wait for what is promised us and stay our minds on it. We must, I say, hope for His blessing when we have served Him with a good courage, but we must do it to that end. We must not be drawn with respect to rewards only. For as I have said, we must be his children and honor him as our father. And since it is he that upholds us, so we must assure ourselves that it is not for us to imagine any merit in ourselves, but that he accepts us out of his own unique infinite goodness, and therefore that we for our part must seek nothing but to vow and dedicate ourselves wholly unto him. But setting that aside, what we must learn here is that when God has set out His promises before us, He must also proceed to spur us forward by means of threats. Why? Because our nature is full of rebellion against Him. We are not only slow, but also there is in us an inclination to draw away from what God commands us. If there were nothing more than slothfulness, yet that certainly is a vice that needs correcting and therefore we would have need of the threats mentioned here. But seeing we are so rebellious, and are always kicking, so that God cannot reclaim us or place us under His yoke, it appears that the manacles are doubly necessary. We see in this the justice of our condemnation, since God cannot win us to love Him, but finds it needful to show Himself dreadful to make us afraid, without which we should fall asleep. Seeing then that God prevails so little with us when He trains us gently, seeking nothing but to make us follow Him with a willing heart, 
let us acknowledge our rebellion and condemn ourselves. And along with that, let us also confess the fatherly care that God has concerning our salvation, seeing he uses all the means that he knows are fitting for us. For it is all the same as if he would, you might say, transfigure himself. His only aim is to reclaim us. At one time he smiles on us, at another he frowns at us. But all this tends to the end that we may be drawn to him to give ourselves over to his service. Threats as Motives Now someone will say, Look, since our lives displease God, and he reproves them when we serve him out of compulsion, if the threats only leave us there, what good are they? It would be better for God to leave them off altogether. But let us note that he trains us by degrees, according to his knowledge of how necessary it is for us. It is certain that if nothing but fear will bring us to serve God, it is worth nothing. It is, however, a good preparation, and it leads us further on after we have begun with it. For example, before God has made us meek, we are full of pride, and our flesh is wholly rebellious. And in brief, we are as colts that have never been saddled or ever tasted the bit. God must take pains to prepare us and to bring us into order, and he uses threats to do so. But this, as I have said, would accomplish nothing at all unless he bonded us to a voluntary obedience and subjection afterwards. And when we have that tendency, then we have gratefully profited in that this pride of ours is beaten down, and we are no longer wild-headed. But we know that there is a judge before whom we must make an account, and we profit in that the same consideration restrains us from using such looseness any longer and from being so heady in doing evil as we have previously been. This is a beginning, and indeed it is only a beginning, insomuch that if we should remain there, we would not yet be plucked out of the mire. But when we have thus begun, then does the Lord match his threats with a taste of his goodness in such a way that we are drawn to him. And in so doing, he shows himself to be our Father. Now, when we understand that God indeed is ready to reward us when we have served Him, even though we are not able to merit anything, but rather only provoke His wrath, then we must have our refuge in His mere mercy to obtain remission of our sins as it is offered to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, and as He has purchased it for us by His death and passion. When we are thus reformed, and are rid of all trust in our own works, then we ought to offer up ourselves willingly in sacrifice to God, as St. Paul also exhorts us in Romans 12.1. He sets forth no reward, but says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercy and compassion that God has shown towards you, that every one of you renounce this world, and also himself, that you become living sacrifices to God, for that is your reasonable service. Promises come before threats. But yet, somebody is sure to raise a second objection and say, If threats make us ready for the promises of God, it seems that they should be placed in the first rank, and that the promises should follow them. But the answer to this doubt is this, that God will hold us more convicted before Him when He begins with us by means of His promises. For we shall have to admit that there is a shameful thanklessness in us, seeing that while our Lord seeks only to win us by love, we still deal rebelliously with him and draw backward when he comes so lovingly toward us. 
You see then why promises are set before us first of all, that we might be the more reproved for our rebelliousness. Then God moves on to show us that His goodness will not avail us unless He threatens us. In doing so, He uses rigor, and the same rigor is profitable to us, since when we are touched with it our hearts are daunted. Not everyone, of course, for there are many that take the bridle in their teeth to strive against God, but I mean the faithful. They are the ones who are prepared for the promises of God through His threats. Afterwards, God turns yet again and allures them afresh with His goodness, as I have said before, insomuch that when He stung them with His threats to tame the stubbornness of their flesh, and surely it is requisite that God should show sign of His wrath, thereupon He sets before us His mercy, which is the accomplishment of all, to the end, as I have said, that we should learn to yield ourselves wholly to Him with a free disposed affection. To whom much is given. Now let us come to the words set down here. If you will not hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe to do all His commandments and statutes that I set before you this day, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verse 15. Here Moses speaks expressly to those who have been trained in the word of God. It is true that those who offend without the law shall perish all the same, as St. Paul says in Romans 2.12. And we ourselves see that the ignorant and blind do not escape punishment at God's hands, even though they might plead that they were not taught, yet they are plenty at fault. But let us note here that our Lord doubles His curse upon those to whom He has showed such favor as to manifest His will to them, for He has shown them the way to saving health, had they obeyed Him and yielded themselves into His teaching. This, then, is not general to all men. Now, first of all, God shows that when He has given His law and published it abroad, the fault lies in the people when they do not understand it. This is the reason why Moses expressly says, The commandments and statutes that I set before you this day. When he says commandments and statutes, it serves to show that they contain a sufficient instruction just as we have told you here before that God has not spoken by halves, but that he has taught his people. Thus they cannot reply and say, We don't know what these things mean. Moses says, Behold the statutes and commandments that I set before you. If you apply your endeavor to them, you cannot go amiss. And therefore, let us bear well in mind that according as God has delivered to us his word, Our ungodliness is doubled before him, and our punishment must be so much the more severe if we are not willing to do good, yea, and also profit therein, and from day to day be established in his obedience. That is what we have to consider upon this text. Moreover, when he says, If you will obey the voice of the Lord your God, it serves to touch us thoroughly to the quick, for seeing that God vouchsafes to speak to us, Is it not fitting that we should at least pay attention to him? And if we act deaf, is this not contrary to nature? For if we refuse to hear someone who is our equal, surely he would take offense at it. How much more would one who is our superior? And since God has all sovereign dominion over us, and has done us the favor of delivering to us his word, and has familiarly acquainted himself with us, if he finds us stubborn against him, disdaining to hear him, 
is it not fitting for him to avenge himself of such contempt? Especially when he sees such a villainous stateliness in us, who are but worms of the earth. So then, what we have to bear in mind from this text is that here Moses intends to condemn the ungodliness of men that continue in hard-heartedness after God has given them the means to return by setting his word before them. Encompassed with Curses Now, when he says that these curses shall take hold of us, it behooves us to remember what was spoken earlier. For in speaking of the blessings of God, he said in verse 2, You shall be compassed round about. And now, in like manner, he joins the curses in the same way, so that we may not think we can escape the hand of God. No matter how sly we are, we shall always be entrapped. It will do us no good to seek places to hide, according to what he has said by his prophet. If you go into your house and shut your door and double bar it, yet shall the serpent come in and sting you there. If you go into the field and seek a way to escape, you shall meet a lion on the way. If you slip away from the lion, a bear will meet you. Amos 5.19 And to be short, whatsoever men do, when God is against them and has become, as it were, their enemy, they must come to find that they are discovered, caught, and entrapped, for they are environed around about with these curses, with no hope to get out. Therefore, let us not deceive ourselves in seeking worldly means to save us. For if the hand of God is lifted up against us, as we shall see in the song here at hand, Deuteronomy 32.23, he has his storehouses full of arrows, and not of three or four sorts only, but of infinite. And if we suppose that we have escaped when we have overcome some evil, then we deceive ourselves, for God has laid by one hundred more. Let us then look for all manner of woe if we disobey God's law. But it would be a miserable appeal if we should come into God by compulsion, solely for fear of his punishments. What must we do then? We must submit ourselves willingly unto him, praying him to keep us from his wrath, and from warring against him, and from forcing him to come destroy us. That would be as if some petty lord should attempt war against a great prince, having neither strong town, nor munitions, nor anything else, and yet should presume to defy one that is able to swallow him if he but lifts his finger against him. Wouldn't that be insane? Likewise, when we provoke our God by setting ourselves against him knowingly, he must war against us and put us in prison. So then, let us pray him not to allow us to be so far gone as to fall into the practice of defying him, but rather to enable us simply to obey him, so that we may be crowned and encompassed with his blessings, as it is said in Psalm 32.10, He that puts his trust in God shall be crowned with his benefits, which is to say, that God will make him to possess his blessings around about him, and he will be so thoroughly fenced on all sides with his safeguarding that he will have no need to fear. Although we are laid open to many dangers, yet shall we be preserved through his goodness. Now, as touching what he adds, we have expounded here before. God, Bringer of Evil Now concerning the curses, he says, You shall be cursed in the town, you shall be cursed in the field, your coming in shall be cursed, your going forth shall be cursed. 
The fruit of your womb shall be cursed, and the fruit of your cattle, and of all your flocks. Verses 16 through 18. From this we again understand that all the evil we see in this world proceeds from the hand of God. By the word evils, I understand all the punishments and all the wretchedness to which we are subject. This is what is said in the prophet Isaiah, where God says, I am the Lord who made light and darkness. I have in my power both life and death, and I do both good and evil. He uses this kind of language purposefully. Not that such evil as is our fault proceeds from God, or that it ought to be imputed to Him. Not so. Rather, he means that all the miseries and calamities we suffer in this world are, as it were, so many chastisements. We may not attribute them to chance, as we shall explain more fully later on, where God says, If you walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you. Leviticus 26.23-24 Those are his words. And why? Because men put mist before their own eyes and say, Lo, what misfortune has befallen me? When they come to be afflicted in some way or other, they cast up spiteful words against God and go beyond their places, not considering that God is a judge and governs the world by His providence. They are not able to perceive that, so dull and senseless are they. And that is why Moses uses this kind of declaration, enlarging it so much in this text. And it served to bring us to what I just cited from the prophet Isaiah, where God shows that He made both light and darkness and does both the good and the evil. We are not allowed to conceive vain thoughts, saying, Whence does this come upon me? It is a misfortune. Would to God it were not so. Rather, we must acknowledge the hand that smites us, for in that is great wisdom. And for the same reason God complains thus by his prophet, This people has not regarded the hand that smote them. Isaiah 9.13 You see, then, how we must understand that all the afflictions and miseries we endure in this world are indeed strokes from God's own hand. And along these lines, it is said by the prophet Amos, Is there any evil in the city that God has not done? Amos 3.6 That is to say, can there happen either war or pestilence or famine or disease or poverty or any other calamity whatsoever that does not come to you from God? Wretched people, are you so foolish and beastish as to imagine that God, who created the world, has left it at random and has no care to watch over his creatures, or to bestow on them what he thinks fitting for them? Does he not sometimes show his goodness, and sometimes make them feel him as judge, punishing the sins of men, and making men know what his office is? Do you think that he lives idle in heaven, and that he does not set forth his power? or that the world is not guided and governed by his providence? So then, just as God earlier has showed that we cannot prosper except by his grace and love, which he extends to us in that he has chosen us as his children, and will also accept our service, so now he shows in the same way that if there is any affliction, poverty, or other misery, they come not by chance, but are the very punishments of God, sent by Him. And therefore, when things do not fall out after our liking, we must fall to considering and examining our sins. If we are grieved in any manner of thing, so that one is troubled with his household, another with the loss of his goods, another with some disease, 
another with some vexation of mind, and another with the loss of something he loved, let us acknowledge it, saying, Lo, it is our God who has lifted up his hand, and holds it up still, and why? Because we have offended him. The first point, then, is that men may not deceive themselves when God visits them, but they must know that by this means they are made to understand their offenses, to the end that they might humble themselves and bewail their sins. So much for one point. No escape from God. The second point is that we must not think we can escape the scourges of God, no matter how sly we are. We shall always be caught by the back of the neck if God is against us. And if we make shields and ramparts and do whatever we can, yet our Lord will not fail to find us. He only needs to blow upon our defenses by which we imagine we can protect ourselves from Him. It is not like dealing with mere creatures. Against such we might fortify ourselves both behind and before. But God will slap us down from heaven. We can erect neither shield nor rampart against Him, hoping thereby to stop His hand from touching us when it pleases Him to punish us. Again, what is the end of all the fortifications that we are able to build against Him, except the overthrow of ourselves? Let us therefore understand that anything men try to do against God will simply turn to their own confusion and overthrow. That is what Moses meant when he said that we shall be cursed in the town and in the field, in our going forth and in our coming in, if we do not obey the voice of our God. And just as he earlier said that God will open his good treasures from heaven to give us rain in due season, so now he says that God will make our heaven as brass and our earth as iron, and that instead of rain he will send frost, he will send us dust and ashes, and there will be nothing but bareness among us. Here we must call again to mind the lesson that has been laid out briefly before, which is that just as every one of us is visited by the hand of God, we shall benefit ourselves thereby, and every man should apply to his own use what is here mentioned. For God uses many ways to chastise us. One is punished in his own person with diseases, reproach, and I know not what else. Another has some secret heartache, so that though he is whole in body, he is continually in torment in mind. Another is plagued with his wife or with his children, and another is troubled with his substance. Accordingly, therefore, as every man finds himself afflicted, so let him resort to what is here told us, saying, Alas, I see how my God calls me to himself. I must not provoke him, for what shall I win by using many crafty devices as worldlings do, who desire to fall asleep in their miseries? The only comfort they feel is to have no regard for God. Now, if we do so, then must what is spoken of in Psalm 32.9 be done to us, which is that God will deal with stiff-necked and hard-hearted people as with restive horses and mad mules. We shall see more of this at length. So then, we must come to the point of feeling God's hand, every one according to his affliction, first on his own behalf and also in common. When we see a drought, let us not accuse the heaven or yet the air, saying it was the disposition of them. Let us not do as fanatics do, who look no higher than the stars. But let us think about the hand of God, 
so that as many afflictions as fall upon us may be to us as visible signs and marks that God executes the office of a judge toward us, and that although he condemns us as often as he punishes us, yet this is not a condemnation to death, but our summons to appear before him, there to frame new processes against us. We should mark this point well. Therefore, when we feel any evil or grief, let us understand that we have offended God, but let us think at the same time that God nevertheless does not mean to execute a final sentence upon us when he thus calls us again unto himself. What then is the purpose? Is it to condemn us without mercy? No, rather he does us this favor, that we might be our own judges, 1 Corinthians 11.31. When he summons us, it is to the end that everyone should plead guilty of his own free will, and thereupon ask his forgiveness and flee for refuge to his mercy. Behold, here is an inestimable privilege. And so let us benefit ourselves both privately and publicly by the things that are told us here, that when we see the heavens burning hot, and we ask rain and yet go without it so that the fruits of the earth fail and the heat dries up all things, let us understand that it is the hand of God that visits us, and let us confess our sins with one common accord. And if any man feels any household vexation, let him confess, Well, God is wakening me by this visitation, because I have offended him. Thus, the main thing God would have the faithful exercise themselves about is the examining of their sins after this manner. As a result, it will come to pass that, as Solomon says, Blessed is the man who troubles himself, and awakens himself. Not that we must so trouble ourselves as to fall into immeasurable despair, but we must quicken up ourselves with fear, because the devil seeks nothing else except to make us dull and dense, so that we should offend God and raz at him with our tongues, as we see certain despisers do who set themselves against him, dashing at him with their horns and vomiting out their blasphemies. Therefore, so that we do not come to that pass, we must arouse ourselves with fear and trembling, which cannot be done unless we profit under the correction of our own indictments, and not tarry until that final laying of his hand upon us, but go before him just as St. Paul says that those who judge themselves will not be judged by him. 1 Corinthians 11.31 God actively runs his creation. Now, finally, it is here declared to us that the course of nature, as we call it, is nothing but the disposition of the will of God, and that he bears such rule over both heaven and earth, and over rain and fair weather, that he changes them at his own pleasure, and yet does not send either without cause. If there were a permanent order in nature, it would seem unto us that God never meddled with it. We would grant that he made the world, but we would then say that he does not govern it. We would think thus. What? When the springtime comes, we see that the rest of the year goes on in the same course as it did the year before. It is always the same. But in fact, we see one winter is longer, and another winter later, and another earlier, yet longer. We see one winter rainy, and another dry. We see abundance of snow in one year, and another year none at all. One year is hot, another cold. Now, 
Does not such inequity make it manifest that God is at work? For the Son performs his office in one year as well as in the next, and always keeps his just course better than the best clocks in the world. How then do we get such variety of weather? It is God's doing to call us to himself. Truly, the philosophers and scientists do seek out causes as they term them. There is such a meeting of stars, say they, and this proceeds of such and such a conjunction. But where does all this come from, if not from the hand of God? We must always resort to the first cause. And indeed, such men are nothing more than beasts if they will not admit that. Yet, it is not sufficient to know that God guides all his creation, and that he holds them bridled in order to make them bow, just as a horseman makes his horse to turn on this hand and on that, to stop and run. It is not enough to know that God looses and binds, and sends such changes as he likes. Rather, we must also understand that God does nothing without reasons. For if we say that God governs the world, and do not know why he plagues us, we shall quickly be inclined to murmur against him. And meanwhile, we shall not profit under his chastisements and corrections, but continue dulled in our sins. So then, let us mark that in shutting up the heavens that it yields no rain, and in drying up the earth as if it were iron, he is showing us our sins, and that he is our judge. This is what we have to bear in mind concerning the course of nature, as it is here declared to us. Nor is God content simply to say that the heaven will be as brass, but he goes on to say that he will send us ashes and gravel or sand instead of rain. Just as we see caterpillars that eat, mar and destroy all that is on the earth, so it only takes one blasting or mildew to eat the corn and consume it wholly. It is worse than if God should sow salt. And these blastings and mildews are of the same substance as the rain. God only needs to make little changes. He can send a little sharp cold, and that same cold will make a clean riddance of everything. When we see such things, then, let us always take warning from this teaching, and let us be no longer entangled in our follies. Let us never say, Ah, evil fortune, evil fortune. But let us understand that our Lord is calling us back to Him, and has His hand stretched out. And let us know that it is he that smites, as if he should say, I have gone about to draw you to myself by fair means, but you have not humbled yourselves before me. Seeing then that you will not be brought to it willingly, I shall now compel you, as if I draw you by the hair on your heads. Let us, I say, be admonished by this teaching here mentioned, to prevent the wrath and vengeance of God, as often as he gives advertisement of the same. Again, when God makes the earth fruitful, let us acknowledge it to be his work, and that there does not spring up a blade of grass except he put his hand upon it. Let us then take our daily food from him, not cramming ourselves like brute beasts which fill their bellies, not knowing whether there be a creator that causes the earth to bring them forth food. But let us understand that God blesses the earth and causes it to yield fruit for our nourishment and sustenance. Let us bear it in mind that in affliction as well as in prosperity we may turn our eyes evermore unto God. The Curses Cling to the Sinner And it is expressly said further that God will make pestilence cleave unto us 
and that he will send other diseases, and that they shall continue upon us until we are consumed by them. This should waken us even better, seeing that God does not strike, as it were, a single blow and then quit, but that his curses shall follow us and cling to us unless we forsake our sins and wickedness. Finally, let us learn that those who stay away from God and hide from him day after day only deceive themselves. For example, we see many who, when God sends them some affliction, take some notice of it, but soon they forget it. They shake their ears and think it is over. And like a dog that has been stuck with a whip, they turn their backs and run away, thinking that they may appease God by some means. Thus deals the world. But let us beware of such stupidity, for we see what is said expressly in this place. After God has spoken his curses, and added that they shall hem us in on every side, he concludes that they shall cling to us. And why? Because if we cling to our iniquities, so that they reign in our bones and in our marrow, and are fixed in our hearts and minds, then must God's curses follow us similarly. When a man will not do away with his evil affections, but is delighted in them, and continues to soak in them, God, for his part, must then shut him up in them. And when we so do, then he must send up his curses to stick fast to us like a leprosy, that they may consume us utterly, so that they do not respond to medical plasters, being so deeply rooted within us, and in a way incurable. Therefore, let us be afraid at the hearing of these things. And so we see now to what purpose Moses adds that the curses of God shall cling to us, namely, to warn us that if the mischief has taken root, we must strain ourselves the more in praying to God to show us the favor of the cleansing of His Holy Spirit, whose property is to search the bottom of our secret affections, that it may please Him to reprove us in such a way that this fear may cause in us a marvelous purgation, expelling our sins from us that we may no longer be wedded to them. And therewithal, let us realize that when diseases begin to reign, or any other afflictions, we may not hope for an end thereof unless we cease to offend our God. It is said in a common proverb that diseases come on horseback, that is to say, very rapidly, and that they return on foot, that is to say, quite slowly. But even though the reason for this is readily apparent, we consider it not. And as I have said before, it is because we do not look to the hand that smites us, nor can God win us to himself by the first stroke when he punishes us. Sure, we are full of fine words. When a man is sick, he will protest that his whole desire is to serve God, and that if he may only recover his health, the world will see him a new man. But all is quickly forgotten. Therefore, it is no wonder that instead of lessening our punishments, God at various times increases them and allows us to languish in our adversities. It is because he sees that our diseases are so deeply rooted that he must come again more often than only once or twice to purge us of them. And therefore let us learn to pray to him, to vouchsafe to cure our faults in such a way that they may not proceed to the extremity here expressed, but that as soon as we feel a little stroke of the rod of his hand, the same may be sufficient to bring us again to him. Indeed, to him with the kind of repentance that will show that we are honest, acting in simple truth, and that we continue therein to the end.
Prayer Now let us fall down in the sight of our good God, accusing our whole life of the malice and rebellion that is therein, beseeching Him to vouchsafe to chastise us with gentleness, and despair us in such a fashion that we are not cast down into despair, but rather are brought home again to Him. And therewithal, since we cease not to offend Him, and it is also necessary that He should daily call upon us, and awaken us, that we may fare the better by His corrections, let us continue to lament and mourn, until that time when He has rid us from all the corruptions of our flesh, and has brought us to the perfection of righteousness wherein lies our true rest, which is the heavenly blessedness we hope and long for. And since we cannot obtain any such matter except by means of our Lord Jesus Christ, may it please Him to reconcile us to God His Father by His death and passion, and in the meantime, so to mortify our old Adam, that His own image may be restored in us, and His glory shine forth in us, that it may please Him to grant this grace, not only to us, but also to all people and nations upon the earth, etc.